So Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the, the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on part, the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship, to the ship. Well, let's uh, let's pray together as we get into God's word. Our Lord. Um, we come before you humbly and we ask for your help. And uh, God, I pray that I would, I would decrease in this moment and that you would increase and make much of yourself. God, I pray that your word this morning and the preaching of it would, uh, would inspect our hearts and would encourage us uh, where necessary and would challenge us where necessary. And I pray uh, that it would nourish our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine this morning if instead of me standing up here, it was Pete or Andrew and they said, I'm going away and I'll never see you again or not this side of heaven. And I just have a few things to say uh, before I go. Well, I imagine, I hope that we would listen pretty carefully. I think we'd lean in. We might put our phones down, maybe take some notes, kind of savour every, uh, every word. 
And that's kind of what we have here, is we have Paul's goodbye address. So he's wrapping up this missionary journey. Um, he spent seven to eight years here in this area, building up churches, establishing churches, um, and now he is saying goodbye and he's departing. One of the churches is the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians. And this is the last time that Paul will see and speak to um, these, these Ephesian elders. And so it's, it's a pretty emotional event. It's pretty weighty. The, the verse, the passage says that there was much weeping uh, on the part of all from everyone. And we see in this, or we, w- we will see, that in this passage, on this special occasion, that, that Paul's central point is that the church is precious. And coming out of that, there are two implications. Because the church is precious, we should be alert and we should be missional. So let's take that central idea first and, and see how we, how we see it here. So as I said, as, as Paul plans to head off to Jerusalem and beyond, he gathers these Ephesian elders. It almost seems a bit like he was going to head off and he couldn't help himself and had to see them one last time. And, and having gathered them together, these are, these are people who are they're called overseers, they're called elders, they're probably teachers of some kind, and they're responsible in a, a special way, uh, kind of a unique way, for the care of the church. And Paul talks very seriously with them. He says um, in verses 18 and 19, he talks about having lived among them, about having served, having served the Lord with all humility and with tears. He says twice in verses 20 and 27 that he didn't shrink from declaring to them the whole truth, so not just the stuff that was easy or pleasant or nice, but the whole truth, perhaps loving them enough to rebuke them and correct them. In verse 31, he says that he admonished everyone day and night and even that he wept with them. See, Paul loved these people. He loved this church. And we get a good insight into exactly why that was the case. Look at verse 28 where he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the church is precious to Paul because it's God's church, which he obtained with his own blood. My uh, one-year-old daughter, Isla, who just turned one the other day, has not yet um, grasped the things that are precious to me and doesn't yet seem to respect them in any way. And so I enjoy books, and I, I love some you know, good quality, particularly beautiful books. I love them. And if I leave them around, I will literally eat them. I love my guitar, and she, she appreciates it in a different way, and she loves to throw things at it and make uh, noise in that way. But my hope is that as she grows, that the things that are precious to me will in some way become precious to her uh, because she loves me. And we see that in a more complete sense here in the... In the the church is precious to God, and because Paul loves God, the church is precious to him. Because it's God's church. And it's worth understanding that. So when we speak about God's people, when we speak about God's children, we are talking about the church. And in that sense, church isn't just something we do on a Sunday. It's not even just a local um, gathering of believers. It's something greater, something more ultimate. It is the people of God from all over the world. And Paul says that it's those people who have been obtained by his own blood, by God's own blood. How does that sound to you? A bit uh, puzzling, perhaps, even controversial, maybe? Well, it's not meant to be controversial. It's meant to point us to the infinite punishment that Jesus took on our behalf. That's Jesus 
who was fully God and fully man. So as a man, he's able to die on our behalf. And as God, he's able to take the infinite weight, the infinite punishment that we, that we deserved. So when Paul speaks of God's blood, he's speaking of the one who came down from heaven to suffer in our place as a man and to obtain the church with his blood. So we, the church, who once were under condemnation and deserving of the punishment for our sins, we have been, we've been ransomed, we've been bought, secured, purchased by Christ himself with his own blood. And he didn't do this reluctantly. It's very important we understand this. And this is some, some uh, Jared talked about this a little bit, kind of the way that God views us and cherishes us. Listen to how Paul puts it in his letter back to the Ephesian church. This is six years later, after this kind of speech. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. And so husbands are meant to cherish their wives and they're meant to sacrifice joyfully for their wives. And the reason is because that is how Christ loved the church. That's how Christ loves the church. John Piper has, has used the term, he's, he's called the church the blood-bought bride of Christ. The blood-bought bride of Christ. And I love that because it, it describes the security we have, that we're purchased by Christ's own blood, and the, the, the way that we're cherished, the preciousness of the church in that we are the bride of Christ. The church is precious to Paul because she is precious to God. Now, we are not the Ephesian church. Obviously, we are Christ Community Church. If you've come along for the first time, that is where you are right now. This is Christ Community Church. But if you're believing uh, in Christ and if he is your saviour, then actually you are a part of the church, the bride of Christ. And you're a part of the same church in that sense, that ultimate sense, that the Ephesians were a part of. And so this, this passage is relevant to us, very relevant to us. As Paul encourages the Ephesian elders to, um, to care for and to, to shepherd their flock, well, so should we care for our local church. And as the Ephesians have their eyes kind of lifted to see their part in the ultimate church of God, the, the bride of Christ, well, so should we also see our part in God's ultimate church. And now in light of that, in light of the, the preciousness of God's church, there are two practical kind of um, implications. They are encouragements, challenges uh, for us. The first one is explicit. It's in the text. Paul talks about it uh, specifically. And the second one is more implicit. And we actually kind of see it when we see what Paul is doing. But we'll get to that in a minute. So the first one is explicit and Paul talks about it. And it is that because the church is precious, we should be alert. In verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And the word therefore, sometimes people say, what's the therefore, therefore? And it, it causes us to look back and to see because of something, therefore this. So if we look back, we see in the verses previously kind of the reason for this command. Well, it is the reason for this command. So in verse 29 and 30, we read this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Do you see the two reasons there? The first one is that fierce wolves will come in among you and attack the flock. So that's talking about threats more, more from outside coming to inside. 
probably talking about false teachers and, and, and false gospels being preached from outside in to snatch away people, to entice people to leave God's church. Now, fierce wolves may seem a, a harsh term um, to describe people, but when we remember that this is God's precious church, and we, when we remember that eternity is at stake, well, Paul's language actually seems appropriately weighty. And the second reason in verse 30 is that men would arise from within the church to draw people away. Now, Paul here is not just being paranoid. We actually know, he, he was certain for some reason that these things would happen. We actually know that they did happen. In Paul's letter to Timothy, in his first letter to Timothy, he speaks about false teachers in Ephesus. And it actually seems like they've come from among the leadership. And in the book of Revelation, we have a letter addressed to the Ephesian church, and it certainly indicates that the Ephesian church has gone downhill since Paul's departure. So these threats, they are entirely relevant to Paul's audience here. But are they relevant to us? Are they still relevant today? Well, I certainly think so. The first threat that Paul mentions is these, these fierce wolves, right, who will come in. People from outside the church looking to do damage, looking to come in, looking to snatch people away from the church. And today, in our world and in our culture, we have an abundance of false gospels being proclaimed to us from the world. Consider just one example, kind of the false gospel, if we could call it that, of, of expressive individualism. You may not know that word, but you've certainly heard it. It says, be true to yourself. It says, if you are true to yourself, you will be happy. And not just happy, but liberated, freed, saved even, saved from the constraints that may be placed on you by yourself and the constraints that are placed on you by the people around you. Perhaps even the constraints placed on you by religion and by the church. On the surface, it can sound like good news. And it is gospel language. It's, it's language of salvation and liberation but it's a false gospel. I was talking to a student um, just the other week who was saying to me that he, he's grown up in a Christian family. He used to call himself a Christian. In fact, he still does call himself a Christian, but he is not following Jesus. He is, by his own admission, he's being true to himself and he is finding happiness and fulfillment, he says, in that, in indulging his every desire, in, in experimenting with all the pleasures that the world has to offer. So he, he has listened to a false gospel and he's being lured away as we speak or has been lured away from God's true church. Well, are you listening to any kind of gospel like that? Are you even perhaps in some subtle ways taken on board what the world is teaching us? There is no true gospel except that Christ came to live, die, and rise from the dead so that we will be saved and worship God forever as we were always designed to do. Anything else will promise freedom but will only lead us further into depravity. So the fierce wolves that come in from outside the church, they're not just a thing of the past. They're not just some archaic thing that Paul was talking about in his day. They are real now and we should be alert and wary of them. Well, the second threat is described by Paul like this. He says, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, it's definitely more sensitive to speak of threats from within the church, from within our number. And I think you can mount a case to say that these are, um, are more dangerous because they are more hidden, because we can 
miss them. These are things that sound like truth, and they may even feel like the truth, but they are twisted. They are twisted things. If we look throughout history, we see that heresy has usually grown from some part within the church. You know, usually some person within the church has, you know, gets the wrong idea of God or of, of Jesus or salvation, and that idea takes root in their thinking, and then it grows to take root in a group of people, and then it kind of assaults the church um, as a whole. You know, consider the, um, the way the prosperity gospel is preached by people who appear to be in the church and who would claim to be in the church, but they are leading people away from Jesus. But look, heresy isn't the only danger. There are less overt things uh, that can also threaten us, that can be a danger to us and to our church. Consider the way that an unnecessary negative comment about a leader in the church can, can grow and can develop and mature to create discontentment and disunity in the church. Or consider the way that, I think this is particularly um, devastating, is when we view that the church should meet our every need, but it can't, so we'll be disappointed. But if you believe that, or if you encourage that view in others, well, then they may eventually leave the church because it has disappointed them. Because they are looking to the church, and we are suggesting that the church can do something that only Christ can do. Now, those things are not as malicious, they're not as um, maybe significant as the things that Paul are talking about, but they are threats and they are dangers. So let me ask you a, a challenging question. Are you actively contributing to the health and, and the unity of, of our church and the church as a whole? Or are you deliberately or inadvertently sowing some seeds of, of disunity, of, of unhealth? See, the, the precious church of God, it is still in danger. There are still threats from, from outside and threats from within, even from within us, even from within me. So we must be alert. We must be wary. Now, we don't need to be afraid of the threats. I'm not trying to develop in us just a fear of these things. We don't need to be scared of them, but we must not become so comfortable that we forget about them completely. Especially in a, a day and age like ours, and, and a place like ours, we have an abundance of... of um, Affluence, we have comfort, uh, pleasure, um, distraction is all around us and we can forget or we can neglect that the, the very nature of our world is spiritual. And so we can be lulled into a kind of a, a sleep uh, where we don't take very seriously or we don't take seriously at all these kind of threats that are around us. And a, a church that is asleep, individuals in a church that are asleep are easy prey for those fierce wolves and those things that threaten us. So we must stay alert. But how do we stay alert? Well, we do it simply by clinging to God and by clinging to his word. Paul goes on, after telling the elders to be alert, he goes on and says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Word of his grace there, we could kind of understand that, the word that proclaims grace. God's word, and, and Paul entrusts the Ephesians, entrusts these elders in their church to God and to his word. So presumably, I mean, Paul's been with these people for a long time, and so he's probably been doing a lot of the work, bringing the word of God to bear on them, you know, teaching them, admonishing them day and night with tears, but now he's leaving and he's saying you have to depend on God alone 
You have to look to his word. The Ephesians would have possessed parts of the New Testament, um, for sure. They would have possessed the, the Old Testament. You know, some of that they've, they've got memorized, some of that they've got in writing. Well, we have today the entire Bible. So we have everything that God wanted to give us, his word in its entirety. And Paul says that it's able to build us up and give us our inheritance. Elsewhere in his letter to Timothy, he says that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So God uses his word to to change us, to shape us, grow us, challenge us, protect us from the spiritual threats that are around. And it, it does all of that because it is his word that is given out of love to his precious church. So do we cling to it? Do we cling to God and do we depend on his word? Do we meditate on it and read it daily? Would we say with the psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth? If you, if you aren't currently reading the word every day, let me challenge you to do that. Let me challenge you to have the Bible open every day and to allow it to encourage you and challenge you. And I challenge you to do that as one who is struggling to do it with you. So this week, um, as is sometimes the case before you give a sermon or something, it seems like a particularly challenging week to get into God's Word. It seems like there are obstacles, and so I have been struggling each day and, and really working hard each day to have the Word open. I try to start with the Word open when I come downstairs. I want it to be open to take any obstacle away from me, and I've, I'm fighting to get in it even a little bit. But I can testify that it is encouraging, it, it's challenging, um, it is helpful. When, when children are scared, some of you have seen this because you have been the scary thing to the child. You've been the unfamiliar person and you go probably with good intentions, you lovingly go up to this child and they freak out because they don't know who you are. And what do they do? Well, they look to their parents or they try to find their parents. And if they're with their parents, they cling extra tight to their parents. And so in a challenging world, in a spiritual world, which is full of spiritual threats, let us cling to our Heavenly Father. Let us look to his word and trust what he says to us in there. Let me say that it's not just for us as individuals, but it's for us together. As a local church, we, we want everything we do to be saturated in the Bible. We want it to be founded upon the Bible, built upon the firm foundation of God's word. So we, we begin the service with a call to worship. Jared did that today, and it's scriptural in its, in its nature. We end the service with a benediction, and we just read a passage of scripture there. And everything between, we want to be saturated in gospel truth, saturated in God's word. Not just on a Sunday, but throughout the week, everything we do, we want it to be soaked in the truth that comes from God's word. See, when we come here today like this, as a, a family of God, as a local church, we come to look to God together, and we come to cling to him together and to help each other to cling to God. If we stop doing that, if we stop looking to God, if we stop savouring his word, well, we will veer away from the truth. We'll become susceptible to those threats. And we will, I believe, cease to be God's church. So let us be alert, both individually and together, by, by clinging to God and listening and savouring his word. Well, the second practical encouragement, it's not so explicit, but it is implied heavily in this text. It is that because the church is precious, 
we should be missional. And we get this, we see this when we see what Paul is doing. And that is that he's leaving. And Paul actually often seems to be leaving. If you read through the book of Acts, he's always leaving and going somewhere else. If you look through his letters, he's always on the go, traveling, traveling around. You know, as much as Paul loves the Ephesian church, he says that he is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And it's not just that he wants to go to other churches. I mean, this is Paul the, the missionary, Paul the evangelist. And so he says, uh, he's you know, just written recently in Romans, that his desire is to preach the gospel where Jesus has not been named. That's Romans 15, 20. So it can sometimes seem like Paul is a man torn between two loves. Like on the one hand, he loves the church, he wants to stay with them, wants to build them up. And on the other hand, he wants to go where the gospel has not been proclaimed and he wants to, uh, to grow the church in, in those places. But we shouldn't so sharply distinguish between those two things. I want to suggest that, that Paul's missional mindset is inseparably linked to his love of the church. In fact, I want to suggest that it's Paul's view that the church is precious, his high view of the church, that actually compels him to be missional. You remember that, that the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ. Well, John Piper has a longer definition. If you know John Piper, he always has a longer definition. And he says, this isn't even the longest definition of it, but he says, the blood-bought bride of Christ from every people, language, tribe and nation. And that longer definition that describes more of the people of God, it comes directly from Scripture. It comes from Re Revelation 5, 9. For you, Jesus, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, Paul knew that there were people that weren't yet a part of the church, people that should be a part of the church, but who would not become a part of the church if no one proclaimed the gospel to them. Paul loved God, he loved the church, and so he wanted to, to grow the church, he wanted to welcome into it all the people so that God would be more fully proclaimed by the fullness and completeness of his church. And Paul's actually echoing something that Jesus said. Jesus said, But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So now I'm sure Paul did feel some tension between staying and going. You know, we, we read that there were tears on the part of all. It wasn't that he was overjoyed to go. But, but we mustn't think that Paul was leaving. He was going to proclaim the gospel to the lost because he cared about that more than he cared about the church. No, it's because Paul cared about the church that he was going to proclaim the gospel to the lost. Well, for us, let me suggest that the preciousness of God's church should also compel us to be missional. Let's just really quickly walk through three ways we see this play out. First of all, we ought to be missional where we are, right here, where we are. In verse 21, we read that Paul was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That gives the impression, we'd expect no less, that Paul was proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing where he was, evangelizing around the church. See, Paul loved the church. He wanted to see people brought into it. He wanted to see people around him brought into the church. If we desire for God to be worshipped by the fullness 
of his church. And if we care for those who are perishing without Christ, then we too should be evangelising where we are. Second, we must be missional in our prayers and in our finances. So not all of us will go out into the world, to the, the furthest part of the world. But all of us can take part in God's work of growing his church through the faithful missionaries who are going. First of all, we can do that through, through prayer. You know, let's pray that God would grow his church. Let's pray that the, the blood-bought bride of Christ would become more diverse and more full and more complete and that God would be worshipped by more people every day as we approach you know, that picture uh, in eternity of God being worshipped by the fullness of his church. If you're looking for an action step, let me provide you one. Each week before church, we have a time of prayer together for anyone who wants to go along. At 915 it is out there across the lawn. You can't really miss it. If you rock up at 9.15, the only people who are here are probably the people who are praying. We can also take part in global missions through our giving. You know, Paul says that people won't come to faith if they don't hear the gospel. And he says that people won't hear the gospel if people don't tell them. And so let us give financially and pray that God would use that to open the doors so that more people can hear the gospel, so that more people believe and are welcomed in to God's church. It's worth speaking as well about the, the affection influencing power of money. So, so Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so on the one hand, we, we spend money, or in this case we give, because our heart dictates that we do so. That's kind of an overflow of the heart. But on the other hand, our heart is actually kind of towed along by our money. And so in that sense, we can actually pray that God would use our giving to ignite our affections and to, to bring our heart in that direction. As a part of our, our mission month, which is what we're in, the final week, we, we do uh, have a... Um, this is kind of the one time in the year when we talk about giving and we'll have a pledge card, and Andrew's going to talk about that uh, in a minute... But perhaps when it comes to giving to missions, you will do so because your heart is for missions and it's an overflow of your heart. Well, praise God if that's the case. But perhaps you will do it in, in hope and, and, and praying that God would use your giving to actually ignite your heart for the lost, to actually tow it along in the direction of, of missionality, in the direction of uh, loving the nations and wanting to see them welcomed into God's church. Whatever the case, I pray that we'll be a church who, who individually, each of us, and corporately all together, you know, prays and gives uh, to God's work in uh, missions all over the world. It's the, it's the wonderful and essential means by which God will nurture and grow his church. And third and finally, some of us will go. So some of us will kind of engage in missions in what I think is the most straightforward way. We will, as Paul did, go to proclaim the gospel where it is not known. Go to the people who have not heard. And before you dismiss that uh, too quickly, you know, let me remind you that there are people in the world who, who should be a part of God's church, but who haven't yet heard the gospel. In Missions Month, we've heard this verse a lot, Revelation 7, 9 to 10, and it gives us a wonderful picture of the church from the perspective of heaven in her completeness. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Well, that beautiful, complete picture of the church of God will be attained by God through missions. It will be attained by the prayers of God's church and by faithful men and women who are willing to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel to those who are perishing. God's church, which is purchased by the blood of Christ, is certainly precious. And because it's precious, we who are a part of it, we must be alert to those things that are threats against it. And we must be protective by clinging to God, looking to him and relying on his word. And not just that, but the preciousness of God's church also compels us to missions, to be outward facing. Because there are those who are not yet saved. There are those around us and in the world who are not yet welcomed in to God's church and they must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, the church is the blood-bought bride of Christ from every people, language, tribe and nation. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful that you have saved us. We're grateful that you have purchased us by your own blood. And we don't want to take that for granted and we don't want to just pass over that. But we want to remember uh, and think about the the love um, that you have for us, for your church. We do pray that you would cause us to be alert and cause us to take seriously uh, the world that we're in with the threats uh, and with the church that we're a part of. And we, we do pray that you would cause us to be missional here uh, in our giving and in the world. And we pray that people from this congregation, people in this room even, uh, would be some of those who would go to the ends of the world uh, to take the gospel to those who are perishing. We pray this, Jesus, in the precious name uh, of our bridegroom. Amen.